Well, it's good to be with you again, and uh, I, I always enjoy coming back here. You know, this is, uh, this is my home church. Um, you probably don't know that because I was here like years and years and years ago, but uh, this was my home church. Uh, I was here through my teen years, the formative uh, spiritual years, and uh, it was here uh, within the confines of, of this church family that I received my call to ministry, and so this is just a, a special place uh, for me. And I appreciate so much the, the chance to come back and, and share with you. Uh, th- these have been interesting days uh, for your church. You know, on the one hand, uh, you, you've had the, the celebration of, of calling a pastor. And I am, I am excited for you and, and believe that God will do uh, great and amazing things. And uh, then, you know, this week, uh, as a church family, you, you suffered loss. Uh, with the, the passing of Jeff, and Jeff was uh, a friend of mine. Jeff was actually uh, one of my staff people uh, when I was a, a pastor in Trenton, and so uh, I share in that, that sorrow uh, with you. But, you know, in all things, both the good and the bad, we find the grace of God to be real. In, in all things, uh, we hold to the hope that God will, in fact, redeem all things. And, and that is what we hold to uh, this morning. And, and I want us today to, to think a, a little bit about what it means uh, to be the people of God and, and what it means to be uh, the church as you all uh, enter into a new chapter, as you have a new pastor and you're excited and we believe that God is going to do great things. What is it that you are to be uh, as, as the people of God? And I want us to look to the Gospel of John in chapter 13, in verse 1. John chapter 13 and verse 1. Before the Passover celebration... Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel he had around him. Uh, I was, uh, a moment of confession, I was a, a terrible student in school, which is really kind of ironic that now I teach at a university. And so, you know, please entrust your children to me because I was a terrible student. Uh, and most of the time, it came down to the issue of, of procrastination. It wasn't really an ability issue. It was a procrastination issue. Uh, I just, I waited until the last minute to do everything, you know. Uh, I had this, it didn't matter how long I had to do an assignment. You know, I had this theory, why spread out misery over three weeks when I can jam it all into one night, you know. I mean, it just made sense to me. And, and I just had it down, you know, I knew how many minutes it took to write a page and I could actually count backwards from the time that class started to when I, the very last moment that I could start writing that paper. And, and I could remember 
uh, it, I had this paper due, it was a big history project, and as usual, I waited until the very last minute, and, and I'm working through the night, and I'm working through lunch, and, and I go, and I finish it right before the class starts, and I, I go in, and turn in this paper, and I know it's garbage, okay? I just got it done, I threw it together, and turn it in, hoping for grace, hoping that I will just get a decent grade, right? And so this strange thing happened. A couple of days pass, and we, we don't get our papers back, which was really unusual. A couple more days pass. And finally, the teacher comes in and says, I got to tell you something. Something has happened to me that has never, ever happened before. He said, you know the papers that you turned in last week? I lost them. He said, I've lost them. I have no clue. I have looked everywhere. They are gone. And he said, the only thing that I know to do, to be fair, because I can't make you do it over again, he said, I'm just going to have to give everybody an A. <laughs> and, and it was a really strange moment because on the one hand... <laughs> You know, I, I'm thrilled. This is fantastic because I did like C work at best and I got an A. But there was also this strange feeling that said, you know, this isn't right. Because I, I knew what I really deserved and it wasn't an A. You know, there is this thing ingrained within us uh, pretty deeply. This idea that you get what you deserve. I mean, that's how, how the world is supposed to operate, right? That, that's what we experience. That's what we learn uh, from the earliest days of our lives. You, you get what you deserve. You, you earn reward and you deserve punishment. And then you go to school and what happens? You, you earn the grades, whether it be an A or a C or an F, you get what you deserve. And then you go out into the workplace and you earn promotions and you earn raises. And if you don't perform, you, you lose your job. And in the world of sports, if you train and you work hard, you deserve to win. And if you don't train or if you cheat, you deserve to lose. You get what you deserve. And, and we accept that. And to be honest with you, there's a lot of stuff about that that's true and right and fair. But this whole idea has a tendency to shape everything in life. You get what you deserve. And it becomes the, the central principle of, of the world. This is how the world works. Or at least that's how it should work. You get what you deserve. But as we think about what it means to be the church, as we think about what it means to be the people of God, I, I think we have to ask the question, that may be the central principle of the world, but it is, is it really the central and defining principle of God's kingdom. Here in John chapter 13, it's the night before the crucifixion. And Jesus is spending these final hours with his disciples and he is impressing on them in this critical moment the most important things. And he is reaffirming everything that he has been and everything he has expressed throughout his ministry. And here in this place, in this critical moment, Jesus does something that is absolutely unexpected and, and quite honestly, 
Jesus does something that is offensive in terms of the expectations. Uh, the one who is the teacher, the one who is rabbi, the one who is their leader, gets up, goes over, wraps a towel around his waist, and he gets water in a basin, and he starts going around, and he gets down on his knees in front of these disciples, and he begins to wash their feet. And in this moment, the one who is the teacher assumes the position of the lowest of all servants, the one who washes feet. And that is even more unimaginable, I think, from our perspective when we start to think, because we understand more now of who Jesus really is, right? Because we look back and we know that, that Jesus, as Paul tells us, is the image of the invisible God. This, this is God in the flesh. Uh, Jesus is the embodiment of God. He, he represents the, the very heart, the very character, the very person of God. If you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. And so here he is, the image of the invisible God, and what does he do? He takes on this incredible, amazing, absolutely scandalous position of humility and serving others. And I think it becomes even more astounding and unimaginable when we start to think about who is in that room. Because you look around that, that upper room what you see is a group of disciples who, quite honestly, just a few moments ago, were arguing about what? Who was the greatest? I mean, these were the guys who had walked with Jesus for all these years. They had listened to him teach. They had observed him. They'd watched his examples. And here, in this moment, this critical moment, they've been arguing and fighting about who was the most important and who was the greatest. Despite everything that Jesus has said about the first will be last, in spite of everything that Jesus has said about denying yourself and picking up the cross, these guys still don't get it. And you look at that room and you see, you see James and John who in spite of everything that Jesus has said about loving your enemy and, and blessing those that curse you and praying for those who persecute you, when, when they were rejected, what did they want to do? They wanted to call down fire, right? Call down the fire, destroy my enemy. James and John, who, who have their mom go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, can my boys uh, be at your right and your left when you come into your kingdom? in spite of everything that Jesus had taught them about the way of the cross. You look around that room, and, and there is Thomas. And what do we remember him for? In just a few days, this guy is going to question and doubt and refuse to believe. And there's Peter, the guy who always had this tendency to, to say whatever came to his mind, typically without thinking it through. 
Peter, the, the guy who actually rebuked, had the nerve to rebuke Jesus and say, Jesus, you got to quit talking about the cross because that's not going to happen. You know, I, I know better than you about the Messiah and what's going to happen, so you just need to, to stop and know it's going to go this way, right? Peter, who in just a few moments is, is going to grandstand and say, you know what, Jesus? I love you so much, and I am so devoted, so much more than the rest of these losers, that even if everybody else falls away, I won't. And just a few hours after that, he is going to have this dramatic failure where in fear and in weakness, he will deny that he even knows who Jesus is. And then there's Judas. You realize Judas is still there, right? He hasn't left yet. You realize that Jesus is washing the feet of Judas. The one who all along has really been more concerned about his own interest than, than the kingdom of God. You know, John tells us that he was the treasurer and used to help himself to the money. But, you know, bigger than that, he's already been prompted by the devil to betray Jesus. And, and it's already a done deal. I mean, he's already cut the deal. He's already sold Jesus out in this moment. And in just a little bit, he is going to get up and he is going to leave the table and he is going to come back in a garden and he is going to walk up to Jesus and he is going to kiss him like he is his friend and in that moment, betray him. That's the crowd. This is a gathering of those who are undeserving. Right? They are not getting what they deserved. This is a gathering of the undeserving. And can I tell you that what we see in the upper room is what we should see in this room this morning? Because the upper room is a picture of the church. We are a gathering of the undeserving. That's what we are. And you see, we need to understand that and we need to accept that. We need to begin to see ourselves in those broken and flawed and undeserving disciples. But we need to recognize that sometimes we have been James and John. That in our spirit we have called down fire on others, right? That, that in our spirit sometimes we have been more concerned about having control and promoting our own agenda than we are about what God wants to do. We need to confess that we have all had our, our moments when, when we are our Thomas and we have wrestled and we have struggled and we have refused to believe. And we are Peter, right? Bold enough and arrogant enough to think that we know what is best without consideration for what God really wants to do. We are Peter 
because we have had those moments when we have denied that we even know Jesus in the words and the actions and the failures of our lives. We have done things that look completely contrary to the person of Christ. And nobody wants to be Judas, right? But we are. Every time we come with the face of a friend, pretending to be a friend of Jesus, but inside we are motivated by selfishness, you know what? That's Judas. Every time we portray ourselves as something on the outside, but inside we're something different, that's Judas. You see, we, just like those in the upper room, we are today a gathering of the undeserving. And we need to understand that and accept that because if we do not, if we don't really accept the fact that we are, as the church, a gathering of the undeserving, we are a body of people who come together not because we have earned it, but we come together in our common weakness and our failure and our brokenness. If we don't understand and honestly accept that, then what happens is the idea that you get what you deserve becomes the principle that we live by. If we don't accept this, then what happens, that that driving principle of the world, you get what you deserve, it begins to shape us, and it begins to shape the church, and it becomes the operating principle of the Christian life. And when that happens, for some of us, the Christian life becomes all about conformity and duty, and fulfilling certain obligations. And as much as we talk about grace, there remains this impulse within us to try and prove ourselves, to try and and earn our way into acceptance, to, to show that we're good enough, we're strong enough, We're faithful enough to be called a follower of Jesus. And we have this idea that, you know, yeah, we're saved by grace, but grace basically throws us into the pool and then you got to sink or swim, right? And so you, you have to prove that somehow you deserve to be here and it becomes a life of religious slavery and a life of insecurity, always trying to prove that, yes, we are worthy, yes, we are deserving, that we really belong and... And God really should accept us, right? Because we've done enough. And we get ourselves into this never-ending cycle of guilt and obligation. And and, and no matter what we do, we could have done more. No matter what we do, we, we could have done better. And when this whole idea of you get what you deserve begins to shape us, the inevitable thing is, we start to view everyone else through that same lens. Because we're trying so hard to prove that we belong and we deserve something, we begin to look at other people through those same eyes. You get what you deserve. And so what do we do? We start making judgments about who belongs and who doesn't belong. Who's better and who's worse. We start making judgments about who should be welcome and who is not welcome. 
and we start to measure people against each other, and, and we start to measure sins against each other, right? We, we elevate some sins, and then we, we kind of ignore or downplay others. And let's just get really honest. When we're playing this game of you get what you deserve, we're always going to elevate the sins that we don't struggle with, Right? And we will ignore or downplay those sins that have infiltrated our lives. Sexual sins, they're up here. But never mind the fact that Jesus said far more about love and money than he did sexual sins. Right? Abuse, addiction, all those things, we'll put those up here. But, but never mind the fact that Jesus said far more about self-righteousness than he did those things. And we can sit and we can point our fingers out at the world at people who are so broken and corrupt and they're destroying our culture and they're destroying the world and all that stuff. And we forget that Jesus' strongest words, if you read the Gospels, his strongest words were always directed to the religious insiders like us who thought that they deserved more than the people out there. You see, that's what happens when we start to play this game, when, when we lose sight of the fact that, that we are a gathering of the undeserving, and we start to be shaped by this idea that you get what you deserve. We make ourselves miserable trying to prove that we're deserving, and we make everybody else miserable by passing judgment. But what Jesus does in the upper room completely upends this whole idea of getting what you deserve. Because Jesus comes to these disciples in their brokenness, in their lack of understanding, in their failure, in their weakness, in their denial, in their doubts, even in their betrayal. Jesus comes to them there in that place and he gets down on his hands and his knees and he serves them right where they are. And in this moment, we see the truth of the gospel, the good news revealed in Jesus Christ, that the love of God is not based on what is deserved or not deserved. It just is. Isn't that incredible? The, the love of God is not based on, on what is deserved or not deserved. It just is. You know, I, I saw this T-shirt a long time ago, and it, it had in big letters, Jesus loves you. And then down underneath that, in smaller letters, it said, but then again, he loves everybody. Think about that for a second. Yeah, Jesus loves you, but then again, he loves everybody. Do you ever think about the power of that statement? That, that Jesus actually loves you as much as he has loved any other individual that has walked the face of this earth. And, and he loves everyone else who walks the face of this earth just as much as he loves you. 
And no matter how broken, how sinful, how messed up we might judge them to be, he loves them just as much as he loves you. And he loves you in spite of the fact that you're just as broken and messed up as everybody else in the world. The love of God is not based on what is deserved or not deserved. It just is. You see, if we truly believe that the love of Jesus just is, that that we are this gathering of the undeserving, and yet Jesus meets us here in his grace and in his mercy and in his love, and he serves us and he ministers to us here in the midst of the undeserving. If we could take hold of that and truly believe that, It would change our lives, and it would change our churches. If we really took hold it and and brought it into our heart, this idea that the love of Jesus just is, you know what? Some of us would be set free from the religious treadmill that we've been running on trying to fulfill your duty and trying to prove that you belong and trying to prove that you're good enough. And you're giving and you're serving and you're working and you're reading your Bible and you're doing all this stuff. And it's good stuff, but the fact is there's no joy in it for you. It's a sense of duty and it's a sense of obligation and you're trying to prove that somehow you are good enough, but you always live under that cloud of guilt. And everything that you do in the name of being a follower of Christ is not an expression of being with someone that loves you and being with someone that you love. It is checking off a list trying to show that yes, you're worthy. Trying to keep yourself in the love and the grace of God by what you do. But when you really understand, guess what? We're all just a gathering of the undeserving, but Jesus loves us and he meets us here in his grace and his mercy. It sets you free. And if we truly believe that the love of Jesus just is, then you know what? We're going to begin to look at others through the same lens. We're not going to waste time trying to measure sins against one another. We're not going to waste time trying to decide who is more worthy of love and acceptance or or who is more worthy to be welcomed and cared for. No, we're going to see that we all share the same brokenness, and yet Jesus comes to us in that brokenness, and he loves us. And when that happens, our churches become communities of love and grace. They become families that open their arms to everyone and anyone. They become communities of faith that go out and serve others where they are. And the spirit of Jesus, who got down on his hands and knees and washed the feet of the undeserving, the church begins to look like that. When we know that we are loved with this kind of love, despite the fact that we don't deserve it, we begin to look at the world through those same eyes and we realize that Jesus loves every one of those folks just as much as he loves me. And guess what? We're all broken and none of us deserve it, but he loves us anyway. 
And we begin to give ourselves in service to others and we begin to embody this truth to one another and to the world around us, to everyone without exception. And that's the key. Without exception, we embody the truth that the love of God just is. There's a moment in my life when uh, this just came to me in a way that changed me, and I, I'd never experienced it that way before. I was going through uh, just a rough time personally in, in my own spiritual journey, and a lot of it just related to this, you know, the, the feelings of unworthiness, trying to struggle, and, you know, all the judgment and all the stuff that comes along with that. And uh, my oldest son was, was young. He was probably two, three years old. And we had gone on vacation and, and gone to see family. And uh, there was somebody in their church that, that owned a resort, and they took us out on the lake one night in their boat. And we were sitting there. The sun was going down, stars starting to come out. And, and my oldest son, Jordan, was sitting in my lap. And, you know, it was getting late with the sound of the boat and the water. He just begins to drift off to sleep. And within a few moments, he's completely out. And he's just there in my lap. And I look down. And in that moment, it hit me. This is what matters. Being with my child. Beyond everything else, this is what matters. And it wasn't that he earned anything. He's like two years old. What can he do? Right? It wasn't based on what he had done or what he ever could do. He was completely weak. He's dependent. He's asleep. He's drooling on me. I mean, come on. And none of that mattered because he was my child. And what I wanted as a father was simply to be with him. Because I loved him, and I loved him not because of what he earned, but because of who he is. I loved him not because of what he had done or what he could do, but simply because he was mine. And in that moment, God spoke to me, and he said, Can you believe that that is how I look at you? That beyond anything you could ever earn or deserve, beyond anything you've ever done or ever could do, I just want to be with you because you're mine. This is the love of God. This is the love of God. It is not based on what is deserved or not deserved. It just is. More than anything, beyond anything you've done or ever could do, God just wants to be with you. And that same truth applies not just to you, but to every single person that walks the face of this scarred and broken earth. He just wants to be with us. And there is nothing you can do that will make God love you more, and there is nothing you can do that will make God love you less. His love just is, and it goes across this globe, and it belongs to everyone. Can you believe that for yourself? 
I mean, that's the starting point. Can, can we accept that for ourselves, that God loves us that way, and we truly are a gathering of the undeserving, but it's okay because Jesus meets us here in grace and mercy, and he loves us? Can you believe that for every person that walks through this door? Can you believe it for every person that lives on your street? Can you believe that for every person that lives in your broken community? that God loves them this way. And, and I know that there are some of us that whenever you start talking about this, some of us get anxious and we start to get nervous. Right? And we start to think, well, you know, surely you got to do something, right? <laughs> what about sin? What about obedience? What about truth? You know? And we start talking about loving people where they are. Well, we're just so afraid we're going to condone what they do. Can I tell you something? If you go back and read the Gospels, apparently Jesus wasn't worried about that. He just loved them. He just loved them where they were. And we need to quit obsessing and elevating all these other things above the amazing truth of the radical, absolute, undeserved love of Jesus Christ. And you know why we need to quit worrying about all this stuff? If your priority becomes living in and living out the radical, undeserved love of Jesus Christ, here's the thing. When people come to experience the love of God and they are embraced by that love and by the grace of God they fall in love with Jesus, it changes their lives. It changes us. It changes our lives. See, here's what the church has forgotten. Love is a far greater motivator than the idea of you get what you deserve. Love is a far more powerful motivator than fear or judgment or guilt. When people, when we just fall in love with God because we are so deeply loved by him, it changes us and it transforms our lives. And I'm going to tell you something, you fall in love with Jesus and you fall in love with others, that is going to guard your heart and your life more closely than any set of rules or moral code or set of truths ever could. And maybe that's why Jesus said, what's the greatest commandment? Love. Love the Lord your God and, and then love each other. Because if you do that, it's going to change you. This is it. This is the priority. To love and to be loved. To love and to be loved. To love this God, to fall in love with this God who first loved the undeserving us. And when we understand that this really is the heart of it all, it sets us free. To live in peace and joy and it sets us free to love one another and to love our world as broken and messed up as we all are. What is the church? It's a gathering of the undeserving. 
But everybody's welcome. Because we're all broken and undeserving. It is a gathering of the undeserving, but Jesus meets us here in love and in grace. Because that's how the love of God works. Do you know what it is to be really loved by God? I mean, really, do you know what it is to be loved by God? And do you know what it is to let that love flow out of your life and bring healing into the lives of others who are just as broken as you are, but they're also just as loved as you are. Lord, in a a few moments, we're going to share together in your table, which is an amazing expression of your love and your grace. It is here that we do experience your grace. And Lord, today I just pray for that one who is living under the bondage of you get what you deserve. Would you set them free? And may they know what it is just to be loved by you. May they be able to take hold of the truth that more than anything, you simply want to be with them because they belong to you. Beyond anything they could ever do, You just want to be with them. Lord, I pray for that one that has uh, gotten caught up in making judgments. That that in that effort to, to be worthy and deserving, they've passed judgments onto others and made decisions about who's better and who's worse. Today, would you just flood their spirit with so much love? that it just begins to to flow out of them and they can look at the world through your eyes and say, yes, we're all, we're all just broken and undeserving, but my God loves us all the same. Lord, form us in the spirit of love so that we might be the church that you want us to be here in this moment, here in this place. pray it all in the name of the one who loves us. Amen.